0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to just make sure that we are prepared spiritually for studying the word, make sure we're in fellowship, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to fellowship around the study of your word, that as we are refreshed by the eternal truths that are in your word, we might be challenged by the Holy Spirit and how we think and what we think, how we live, and that we may come to a greater understanding that we are to take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. And that means that we are to think about everything that we are involved in in life, how we think about it and what we think about it, every uh, intellectual discipline, uh, every academic discipline, every practical involvement that we have, all is to come under the authority of your word. Now, as we study these things, we pray that we can focus, put aside the distractions of our day-to-day lives, coming events the rest of the week, uh, things that have happened today, and that we can just be strengthened, encouraged, as we're reminded of your grace, of your power and of all that you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Last time we... Uh, we're covering the introductory section at the end of chapter 16, which tells us about the situation in the northern kingdom of Israel when Elijah came on the scene. We'll still spend some more time on that this evening because it's, uh, it's important to understand the context and the culture of uh, the northern kingdom and their apostasy and the depth of their rebellion against God and how that has really worked itself out into every aspect of their culture. The people in the northern kingdom, especially the leadership, have rejected God, and in his place they have substituted not merely the idol that Jeroboam had initiated when he had taken power some 50 years earlier, but they have now degenerated to the perversion of the fertility religion as expressed in the worship of Baal and the Asherah, the Phoenician religion that was brought into the northern kingdom by Jezebel, whom Ahab married. And we've seen that Ahab is now the king in the northern kingdom. He's married uh, Jezebel, and with her, as part of her dowry, came 450 priests of Baal, whose mission is to go through the land and, and spot all of the believers and to uh, arrest them, kill them, persecute them, and to destroy any evidence of biblical truth in the land. And it is in that context that Elijah is going to suddenly appear in the court of Ahab, the king in Samaria, and announce, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, There shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the whole biblical context. Uh, Elijah isn't just saying this because this is something God told him to say. He's not saying it because it seems like a fitting judgment. But he is saying this because it fits within the judicial punishments that God outlined in Leviticus chapter 26, which we refer to as either the five stages or the five cycles of discipline that God promised Israel if they turned from uh, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to worship other gods, that's the core problem that Uh, Israel was to face in their existence, and it's really the core problem that every human being faces is are they going to choose life or death as uh, both Moses and Joshua put it? Are you going to choose in your life the path of life or the path of death? The ultimate issue in the angelic conflict is the volition of the individual and whether or not, first of all, that they choose to uh, want to know about God, positive volition at God consciousness, choose to want to know about God, choose to uh, then respond to the gospel when they hear it. Just because a person uh, expresses some positive volition at God consciousness, that they want to know more about God, doesn't mean that at gospel hearing they will respond to the gospel. They may still reject the gospel at that point, but the issue boils down uh, to volition and The prophets of Israel, both uh, Moses and Joshua, as they were uh, challenging the Israelites, Uh, uh, Moses, when the Israelites were about to go into the land to conquer the land, Joshua, after they had conquered the land, or at least the major sections of it, as he called them together uh, for a covenant renewal ceremony, he challenged them with the, the, the choice and recognizing, both Moses and Joshua recognized that this would be the real problem that Israel faced, whether they would be loyal to the God who brought them out of Egypt, loyal to the God who gave them the law, loyal to the God who provided freedom for them, or were they going to turn away from the God who had given them freedom and put their uh, hope in something else? And whenever Israel is turning from God, that's always defined in Scripture as evil. The core issue, and I've wrestled with this for years, how to define evil. And some of you have heard different definitions of evil. Sometimes we uh, hear people use evil in terms of uh, experiential uh, perversion or sin or violence or something of that nature. But The way the Bible uses evil more than anything else is to focus on man's disloyalty to God. And that's how it's used throughout Kings, that uh, so-and-so, usually referring to a king in the northern kingdom, so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, and what that means is they continue to promote idolatry. It is a violation of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. And when Israel, as God's chosen peoples, God's, god's own nation, w- turned away from him, this was the really the highest form of treason possible. And so that disloyalty toward God, who was the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, is the root of all evil. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was an act of disloyalty, an act of treason against the creator God who had made them, who had provided everything for them, and had put them in the garden. So uh, this concept of evil starts fundamentally with a rejection of God. It only culminates... In different acts, different horrendous acts that we often describe as evil, but those are merely the symptom and not the core cause. The core cause has to do with an orientation toward God, and once God is rejected, something else always moves into his place, and that is the essence of idolatry, worshiping something other than the creator God of the Bible the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the triune God who is the one and only true God to worship anything else as the source of meaning, purpose, happiness in life is idolatry, whether that's a person, whether that's an institution, whether it's a country, whether it's money, whether it's an idol in the form of uh, wood, stone, or uh, metal, uh, whether it's an abstract idol of thought, it doesn't matter. Anything that is deemed the source of meaning and value in life, uh, rather than God, is idolatry, and that is the starting point of evil. Once God is moved out of that position, then everything else flows from that. All of the things we associate with evil, uh, violence, uh, tyrannical government, uh, abuse, the breakdown of family, the breakdown of all the divine institutions – basically all come out of that core decision uh, to replace God with something uh, something else. And that's what's happened in Israel. They've replaced God, the God of Moses, with the God of Jeroboam first, and then now the God of, of the Phoenicians. And so this is why Elijah has this name, Eliyah, in the Hebrew, my God is Yahweh. It focuses on the core about who is your God. And if you say that the God of the Bible is your God, then what are you doing, how are you thinking, and how are you living That is in, that's consistent with that assertion? There are a lot of people who say they're Christians, that they believe in God, but if you look at how they think and how they act, how they talk, what they do, where they go, it's not consistent with that core belief. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are perfect. All Christians have sin natures. All Christians continue to sin. But in terms of your basic framework and orientation towards life, your basic convictions, your basic value system, must be shaped from this starting point of having the God of the Bible as as your God. Now, the sin that's has taken control of the northern kingdom is this sin of uh, Baalism. We read in 1 Kings 16, 30 and 31, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all that were before him, and it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing or a light thing. And we saw this last time that the Hebrew there indicates that it, it just treats Uh, The God of the Bible, the truth of Scripture in a casual, offhanded manner as if it's no different than any other religion, any other assertion. Of course, we see that today in so many sectors where the Bible is is denigrated. Uh, Just watch this time of year uh, after Christmas or during the Christmas season. We always see all of these specials about Jesus on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and the National Geographic Channel, and all they are is attacks on the veracity of the Bible, just one after the other. None of them present the Bible in a positive light as a book that is historically factual and a book that is true. And they trot out all of these so-called Christian scholars who hang out at the liberal seminaries And on occasion, they might bring out some uh, conservative, but then the way they edit what they say uh, is done in such a way that anything that they might have said that would really focus the issue on the error of the other side is edited out. And so you're left with a view that the Bible is just this, and Christians are just another group of irrational uh, religious fanatics, and there's no historical... uh, factual basis for what they believe, because the assumption of modern secular man, this is his religious assumption, and that's one thing I want to focus on tonight, is looking at the contrast between the religious assumptions of of the pagan human viewpoint culture versus the assumptions we have from the Bible, is that the assumptions of modern man are that anyone who believes in the supernatural or any belief system that uh, is based on s- the supernatural, that is something that is not empirically known and seen today, is, uh, irra- that is defined as being irrational, and that you can't believe in the Bible or in Christianity and still really be a rational, thoughtful, uh, intelligent Person, because by definition, anyone who would believe in, the, in God or that the Bible was the Word of God would be uh, irrational or uh, anti-intellectual. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians who are more than willing to demonstrate that they have lost the ability to think, and they always manage to show up at these times and get on the, uh, get on the news. So we see that what happens in the northern kingdom is that uh, Ahab is has totally rejected the history of Israel and that's always what happens is you, you the God of the Bible is a God of history he controls history and he works in history so that in history you can see the footprints of God you can see the evidence of what he has done unlike Every other religious system, whether you're talking about Islam or Mormonism or Hinduism, Buddhism, any of the Eastern religions, they, they are non-historical. Only the Bible claims to have a God who works in history in such a way that, the, that history validates the truth claims of the Scripture. And so Ahab has rejected the Israel's history, Remember I pointed out that Jeroboam rewrites the history when he typical of of um, uh many who reject God is their historical revisionist. So he instead of saying God of uh, Moses took us out of Egypt, it was this golden calf that took us out of Egypt. He a rejection of history, so Ahab just continues that. He's go but he goes a step further. And he when he marries Jezebel uh, she's the daughter of Eth Baal, and you see the name Baal at the end of his name, and that indicates, uh, again, his loyalty. The king of Sidon is loyal to the god Baal, and so Ahab goes and he serves Baal, and he worships him. Now, what we always see in scripture is that there is a contrast that works between the false religious systems, which we generally classify as human viewpoint or paganism, and the truth that we have in Scripture. Now, in the historical situation of that time, uh, they worshipped Baal, and Baal was the storm god. He's also known as Hadad and the uh, uh, or Moloch and some other religions, uh, the Moabites, the um, uh, Syrians, worshiped Hadad. He's the weather god, and when you live in an agricultural environment, the weather is very important, but he's more than the weather god. I mean, it's not just the fact that he controls the weather and he brings rain. It's that that is at the very core of the entire life cycle and economic cycle of any of these countries in this part of the world so that the, the, the worship of Baal becomes central to survival because he's the one who controls rain, he controls the sun, he controls the weather, he's going to bring about uh, productivity of the crops. But whether you're talking about Baal or Hadad or uh, Moloch or any of these other gods or goddesses within the pantheons in the ancient world, These gods and goddesses are just one among a group of nature gods that have been generated or invented or made up by people in order to uh, give them a, a, a rationale, a myth, a story, if you will, to validate their rejection of God. Because once you take God out of the picture, you still have to be able to answer the question, uh, where did we come from? How, where did man start? What is uh, what is man? Uh, what is our future? What happens when we die? Where do we get ideas of right and wrong and good and evil? You still have to answer all of these questions, and there has to be some sort of overarching uh, explanation to human existence and to uh, human society. And you only have two options. One is the the biblical story, and I've used that only in the sense of a narrative. It's the biblical, the, the the events that are described in the biblical, or it's some other event. Now, if the Bible is true, then anything else is just something that folks made up. It's just something they, ju- they just generate from themselves, that mankind has just uh, invented in order to make himself feel good, about himself, and to explain the nature of reality. So if man makes up his the whole origin of man, that's why creation versus evolution is such a crucial, crucial debate in our culture. It is a foundational debate. Because if you believe, on the one hand, that everything starts from a personal, infinite God who is rational and who uh, communicates to man, then everything that you think from that foundation is going to change, and it's going to be different from the starting point that, the, that most of the world has, that the cosmic system has, and that is that either it starts from a, everything started from a finite God, a personal God who's really finite. You think about, the gods of the Greeks and many of these gods in the Egyptian pantheon and the Babylonian pantheon, Canaanite pantheon, these are, they, they, these are just sort of blown up men. They're just like larger than life men. They're not, they're not, uh, completely different from, uh, humanity as the God of the Bible is. He's the creator God who is set completely over against, uh, Uh, mankind he is totally different he is completely different categorically different in every way he is completely separate from the creation whereas these other gods and goddesses that you have in all these other uh, world religions are part of the cosmos itself they're part of the universe itself Uh, uh, Aristotle developed this a little bit. He called it the chain of being, that there is something called being, which is at the very core of life and existence, rather, uh, not life, but just existence, because even uh, um, inanimate objects have existence, have being, rocks have being. So there's just everything's on the same scale of being from the most uh, simple uh, protozoa, uh, amoebas, amoebas, uh, fungi whatever there might be all the way up to the most complex they're still part of the same chain and god is just still part of that same chain he's just further up the ladder than man is so man creates a god in his in man's own image in order to explain everything but man uh, still is in control he s- creates these substitute substitutes gods now to explain this and to give you some something of a handle on how to use this to think and analyze what's going on around you, uh, I developed this chart. On the left side, we have the biblical view of God and the universe. And on the right side, we have the pagan view. And every pagan view fits within this uh, right side to, in one degree or another. Ultimately, they have some sort of infinite uh, impersonal universe now they may have personal gods or may, they may have impersonal gods. you look at at the Eastern religions have an impersonal God they have an impersonal force like uh, like Luke Skywalker in the uh, star wars uh, trilogy it 's just an imp- there's no person there now think with me if there's no person there, that means there is not a rational being there. It's non-rational or irrational. It's just a force. It, a force doesn't think. Something that's non-personal doesn't think. So that means that the ultimate reality in the universe is not going to uh, be rational. You know what? The, one of the implications of that is that man doesn't have to be rational. In fact, if there is if the ultimate meaning of the universe isn't rational, then reason isn't all it's cracked up to be. So let's quit being rational and logical and consistent because that doesn't get us anywhere. The only way you can experience any kind of connection to an impersonal God, an impersonal force, is through some sort of feeling or some sort of loss of consciousness, which is what you get into with various forms of Eastern meditation. The idea is to empty your brain, your mind, of all thought, because only then can you come close to that which the ultimate reality, which has no thought, it's non-rational. So you either have an impersonal force, which is non-rational, or you have a personal god, but a personal—the personal gods that man develops are all finite and they're flawed deeply. The impersonal force may be more may be infinite, but it's non-rational and non-personal. The the uh, personal gods are not infinite; they're just finite. They're finite. And they're flawed. And man ultimately, man ultimately controls them. Now, look on the left side. Left side, we have the biblical view that God is personal and infinite. He is personal. That means that he is a thoughtful, thinking, rational being. He, therefore, because he is rational... His thoughts are logical. His thoughts, therefore, though we may not know them exhaustively, that is, we can't know everything God thinks, but what he reveals to us, we can understand. And he can reveal it to us in a way uh, that is understandable. And therefore, based on his revelation, we can understand The flow of history, we can understand the character of God and in studying the scripture, we understand that this God, that the God of the Bible is a God who is faithful and dependable and is, because he is, he is righteous and immutable, unchanging, he is going to do what he says he will do. Now, let's go back and think a little bit about how that affects uh, what effect that would have, or what effect the infinite impersonal God has on that kind of thinking. If it's a personal God, like we have with the Greek religions, polytheism, with the uh, Phoenician religions, you have a personal God, but because he's not rational, he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's ultimately not a rational God. Therefore, he is irrational. He is not dependable. If he's not rational and not dependable, that means that the actions of such a God are completely arbitrary. If a God is arbitrary in his actions, that means that today he may do one thing, But tomorrow, he may decide to do something else. And the next day, he may decide to do something else. He is whimsical. He is not controlled by a standard such as the God of the Bible. As we talk about God being righteous, that has to do with the fact that he has a standard. His character is the ultimate standard, and he is... Immutable, he doesn't change, and he is absolute truth. So he is controlled by the law of his own character, we might say. That is not true about the limited finite uh, personal gods, the little gods of the various polytheistic systems. So those gods are ultimately whimsical in what they do. One day it may be one thing, the next day it may be something else. We can't know. We can't uh, evaluate that. They're not uh, controlled by anything other than their own capricious will. Therefore, anyone who is in charge and is capricious, how would you like to work for a boss that was completely capricious today? It would be one thing, tomorrow it would be something else, and the next day he'd come in with a totally different way of doing everything. See, we also have, we have a couple other words for that. They're tyrannical and they're despotic. This is the kind of thing you you see if you have read anything about Hitler or Saddam Hussein. You know, one day it's one thing and the next day it's something else. It's whatever uh, uh, appeals to them that particular day because the only thing that matters is what they want to do when they want to do it. So you have gods like this, deities like this. Now, let's extrapolate from this a little bit and think where that leads us logically in terms of the implications of such a God. Such a God would not provide the basis for any kind of certainty in life. Whatever, however things function today would not help us understand how things would function tomorrow because such a God would be... Whimsical, arbitrary, something, he could do something completely different tomorrow. And so some religions have tried to explain that with a doctrine of fatalism. It's just Allah's will. But Allah can do something different tomorrow because he is this heavenly despot who does whatever he wants to do. He is completely whimsical. So Allah fits that pattern. As, did, as do the other gods within these other pantheistic systems. Now, if you have a God who's capricious and arbitrary, then he cannot provide the basis for any kind of certainty in life. Well, any, and if there's no certainty in life, then you can't predict anything. Now, most of us grew up in a culture that was, even though it was already secular, it was still grounded in a, Christian worldview so when you wake up when you're sitting here today you know that the sun's going to come up tomorrow don't you but if you're a consistent Muslim or a consistent Hindu you don't know that you can't know that because ultimately the deity the divine force that you worship is irrational and capricious that's why science only develops in Western civilization. Science never developed in Africa. Science didn't develop in Greece. Science didn't develop in Rome. Science didn't develop in Egypt or in India or in Japan or in China. And this has really bothered some thoughtful uh, atheists such as Bertrand Russell. Just couldn't get over the fact that China had all of this, what what we'd call technology, but they could never make the move to science, because the difference between technology and science is science seeks to answer the question why in order to provide a rational, logical explanation on the basis of which you can make predictions about how things will be tomorrow, the next year, and the next year. That's science. That's only Christianity provided a framework within which science could be born so you didn't have science you have technology the chinese developed paper and they developed uh, gunpowder and they put them together and they made firecrackers but they never developed a rifle they never developed uh, artillery they couldn't make the leap because that means you have to bring in a uh, a a philosophical system that is predicated upon dependability in the world system and predictability. So that can only come if you're presupposing a God who is in control and is immutable and is rational so that he can communicate to man. So science is technology plus rational explanation and the ability to predict Future events, that's what happens in the scientific model. You develop a theory or a hypothesis, you test it, you validate it, you make predictions, you go into the laboratory, evaluate it, and then go on. You, you don't have the development of medicine. You don't have the development of, of uh, technology. You don't have the development of, of uh, I mean, not te- technology, but you don't have the development of, of science, per se, and all the advances that we associate with Western civilization in the East, or in Islam. It just can't happen. That's why you can't export democracy to these cultures either, because the idea of a constitutional democracy is predicated again on the idea of an external, unchanging value system. And you only get that if you're presupposing Christianity and the God of Christianity and the God of the Bible. So, you have this contrast being set up between the irrational uh, finite god system of the polytheism of Baal versus god and that 's what you have to understand all of this to really appreciate the the dynamics the polemic that 's going on inside this uh, whole Elijah episode because everything that Elijah is doing is a direct attack and refutation against the claims of the uh, polytheists and the ba- Baalists. So another way in which this works itself out is if you base your thinking on the pagan model of a god who is who is down here, let's go back to the chart a minute. What I have on the right is that out there somewhere there's just this in, infinite impersonal universe, just just matter. Now in modern Darwinism, what what existed before the Big Bang? What was there? Was there nothing there? No. There was something there. There was this dense blob of matter, but matter and energy are eternal. Well, you have the same kind of thing in all of your pagan religions. There's always uh, or, original creation is never original. It's never ex nihilo, Latin phrase meaning out of nothing. You look at Hinduism, you look at Mormonism, you look at, Mormonism is just cyclical, one after another, if if you don't know it. The ultimate ideal for a woman in in Mormonism is to uh, be called forth from the grave. Women cannot be resurrected in Mormonism unless the husband calls them forth from the grave. If you've been a good wife, good little wife, then he'll call you out from the grave and you can be resurrected to be his uh, his Eve and he'll be the Adam and you'll be the Eve and you go off to some new planet and you get to be pregnant to populate that new planet for the next five or six millennia or more. So sounds like heaven, right? Within all these other religions, you just have this cycle, ongoing cycle. There's no, Direction. There's no progress. See, that only comes from Christianity. So Christianity provides this whole notion not only of a rational universe, but that there can be real progress. You ever wonder why from until Christianity came on the scene, man had been around for 4,000 years, and there's really no scientific progress? It's not until after the Reformation. You have some before the Reformation, in, 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 which lays the, fa- the, the foundation in Western Europe. But with the Reformation, it just explodes, and it's right after the Reformation that you have the explosion of modern science in the 17th century. But all of those original scientists were believers. They were all Christian. Some were Roman Catholic. Many were Protestant. They were believers. And as you go into the 17th century, and they do this because they understand the, the reality of the God of the Bible, so it provides that framework, uh, framework for them. Now, over against that, all of your pagan systems have uh, a closed universe. That's what I indicate by the circle. It's a closed universe. There's You can't know anything that's outside of that circle. You, there's no empirical knowledge of what's outside of the circle, and what's outside the circle can't pierce the circle to speak to what's inside the circle. As opposed to the left side in Scripture, you have the God who is personal and infinite, but he speaks. He can come, break through that barrier, but man uh, has can only have a direct perception of God if God so chooses. Now, on the right side, what I have is, and uh, what I'm showing in this diagram, is that the gods and energy, matter, man, and nature are all within that circle. The gods are not outside the circle. That's the creator-creature di- distinction, which is unique to Christianity. That's what I'm indicating by the uh, black line there between God at the top and the finite universe at the bottom is that they're totally separate, totally distinct. God is completely other. But in all of your philosophical systems that aren't uh, Christian, all of your uh, pagan religions, the God is part of the system. As man is, that's that chain of being idea that that, uh, Aristotle uh, talked about. So if man is inside this, this linked system and the gods are part of that linked system, then what man has to learn how to do is manipulate the god to get what he wants. And that's true in every one of these systems. We usually talk about it in much more simple terms. We just say works. Man's trying to impress God with his works, but it's much more sophisticated than that. Man is trying to manipulate the gods through his obedience, through his religious activity, through his sacrifices, whatever it is, and comes up with just a plethora of different ways in which man can manipulate the god to do what man wants him to do, because after all, the god is just a blown-up version of the man. He's just a little bigger, a little more powerful, but he is not completely different or completely other. So the pagan model of a God is a God who's within this closed system. He's not distinct uh, from man, and so uh, he's just as trapped within the universe as man is. And he is just as subject to the fates. Remember that from Greek mythology? He's just as subject to fate as and that's the impersonal force. He's just as subject to fate as man is. But the Bible, in contrast, presents a God who is separate and distinct from nature, from creation, who controls nature, who interferes with nature, who actually changes and transforms things because he is the creator who is over everything. And so man isn't trapped within this closed circle he has access to God who is outside of that particular, uh, of that circle. Now, the gods of the Old Testament cultures are all nature deities and whom these mankind, who these people were learning to manipulate. And that manipulation was often related to the lust patterns of the sin nature. And the primary lust patterns that were appealed to were sexual lust material lust and power lust materialism lust is very evident in baalism because it's a fertility religion why do you want to have fertility do you want the crops to be productive you want people to be productive you want to make money if you don't have uh, if you if you're not successful in planting and it's it's awfully mysterious you put that seed in the ground and several months later it starts putting forth grain hmm and we can't explain it rationally because we have rejected a rational God, a ra- ultimately a rational explanation from everything, so we have to explain it through some sort of superstition or some sort of made-up myth. Now, the made-up myths have gotten much more sophisticated now. Now we have Darwinism and we have uh, modern science and their modern origin myths, but the, those origin myths are going to cha- have changed the way man operates in terms of society and in terms of culture. So these, but these religions, but religions in the world really haven't changed. They still appeal to man's lust patterns so that man can get what he wants. Uh, you have um, uh, sexual lust was a strong element in the fertility religions and the level of sexual perversion was just incredible. You see, what, what's going on is that man's down that chain of being under God, but he's got to manipulate the God somehow to to make his crops fertile. So he's going to imitate his, the only thing he can do to produce fertility is sex. So he's going to engage in massive sex orgies in order to manipulate the God to bring rain and to, uh, make the crops fertile. So this, this was a vital part of the whole fertility religion, but you have the same kind of examples in modern religion. You have strong elements of sexual perversion in Mormonism. Mormonism was built off of one, built by one of the most sexually perverted degenerate people in all of American history by the name of Joseph Smith. You didn't find a counterpart to him again until you got into the 20th century. Now, you never heard that in any of your uh, state-run education classes because uh, they they just, number one, your teacher didn't know anything about Mormonism, and number two, they didn't want to offend anybody. But, see, Joseph, Joseph Smith wanted all of his elders to prove that they were loyal to him. And the way they would prove their loyalty is that he would get to sleep with their wives whenever he wanted to. And that's just the beginning. The reason you had, poly, uh, you, you had polygamy in Mormonism was because of this uh, sexual perversion that Joseph Smith had and Brigham Young as well. They just wanted to sleep with every woman they, they saw, and they wanted to legitimize this in, in religion. And if you do a comparison between Islam and Mormonism, you'll be amazed at how closely they uh, follow one another. I mean, the whole story of how Joseph Smith got the Book of Mormon, and the angel appeared to him gave him these magic glasses to put on so he could translate the uh, original book of, book of Mormon is is almost identical to Muhammad. I mean, it worked several hundred years earlier with Muhammad. He went goes up into a cave and an angel appears to him and dictates the Book of Mormon to him. It's the same, same kind of story. They both uh, authorize polygamy and And if Mormonism had to change in order to fit into the Christian environment uh, of of the United States, but if you go into the backwaters of Utah, I guess it wouldn't be backwaters, it's too deserty. But if you go back into the back valleys and canyons of Utah, you find all kinds of weird, perverse uh, groups back in there that are all these little Mormon sects, like this one we had in in Texas just this last year that... uh, uh, had all of these all these problems with m- marrying young girls the average age of the first divorce in utah you know i 'd say guess the average age of the first divorce in utah eighteen you 're close eighteen. Because they've been fed all this stuff about how wonderful it is, so they've been married since they were thirteen or fourteen, and they've been fed all this stuff about how great marriage is, but there are all these temple marriages, and the uh, uh, polygamy continues, so it's a it's still a major problem but that's that's just one example uh, islam is is very similar when you read about what actually goes on inside of a family unit in Islam, and you don't hear it unless somebody comes out of Islam and uh, and talks about it, uh, you realize how sexually perverted Islam is and how much it hates women. In fact, men blame women for all of their failures at sexual self-control. That's why women have to cover everything up, because they're told that if a man just sees just a little bit of female flesh on the cheek or on the heel or the elbow, then uh, the whole universe will turn into chaos. I mean, cars will crash, buses will turn over, wars will start, volcanoes will erupt, everything will fall apart. And so the the men have blamed the women for everything, so they have to keep uh, women in a terrible uh, state of servitude and they dominate uh, the women. That is, if they're consistent Muslims, now many of them aren't, but uh, if you are a consistent uh, Quran-based Muslim, that's the way you are. Now, um, you see the same, and, and what it's done is it's destroyed, not only has it destroyed women and femininity in Islam, but it has destroyed masculinity. The men are basically cowards, I mean the consistent ones. Like the ones we see in, uh, in Gaza right now who are hiding behind women and children and, and they put all of their, uh, uh their, their, the missiles and rockets that they have and hide them in orphanages and hospitals and they hide behind the skirts of their women because they're just basically a bunch of cowards, because the men have always blamed somebody else for their problem, which just goes back to the fall, that the basic trend of the male sin nature is to absolve itself of any responsibility, just like Adam said, you know, God, it's the woman uh, you gave me. It's not my fault. So you, you see a lot of these things. If you want to read an, a book that would give you a lot of insight into this, as uh, the book Infidel, by a, a Somali Muslim woman who left there, ended up going to Holland, uh, becoming a member of the Dutch parliament, and just she just tells the whole story of what it's like to grow up in this repressive culture of Islam and what it was like to come to the West and to come to a place where uh, buses would actually arrive at 927 when the schedule said they would arrive. And never seen anything like that. Order. And see, once again, that goes back to the kind of God you worship, a God that is uh, whimsical, a God that is capricious, a God that that will do one thing one day and something else the next day, uh, is not the kind of God that's going to produce a culture that can produce a railroad time schedule that anybody's going to keep. And that's one reason that there's real hope for Israel is that, The Arab armies have never been able to function together, work together, to carry out any kind of orderly, organized plan against, military campaign against Israel because it's against their whole found, the foundation to their culture. So anyway, Infidel by Ayan, Ayan, Hirsi, Hirsi, Ali, A-L-I. So how one views God, the gods, the ultimate reality in their system, affects everything. It also affects your view of human life. If man is just the product of time plus chance and you're just a cosmic accident, that somehow uh, the only reason you're here is because a lightning bolt hit, hit some primordial slime somewhere and out popped a, uh, so, something moved from inorganic to organic life, then you're just a product of chance there's no real meaning or value, and that's what you have on the uh, on the right side. Or if you're just a product of some god who got mad at another god and pulled out a sword and chopped him into little pieces, and part of it made the earth and part of it made the stars and part of it made uh, men and women, then there's no real value to human beings or to human life. In paganism, human life is all part of this chain of being, and so you're basically no different. A human being is no different from an oak tree or an amoeba or a pill bug or a slug or uh, a hyena. And so if you're going to treat them a certain way, you have to treat man the same way. Of course, we have the animal rights activists now who want us to treat the animals like we treat human beings, and they're just as confused uh, so in the and in the Bible, though, in contrast to this, all human beings have equal value because they 're all created in the image of God man doesn 't manipulate God by his works, his rituals, or his actions in contrast to what we see in the uh, pagan religion now, in Baalism. Man has to manipulate the God to produce fertility. There's no certainty or stability, so you have to do this all the time in order to keep the God motivated to bring rain and to uh, produce the crops. Uh, Furthermore, children's lives had little value. In some of the extreme cases, the children were sacrificed, and they were burned alive in the arms of these idols. They would build up these fires, and then they would just put the infants there and sacrifice them. There's no value to the life of a child. Uh, and the ritual sex that they engaged in was uh, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, just with whomever, however, whoever, whenever, uh, in order to stimulate to God. It's 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 as perverse as it could possibly be. And ultimately, it makes man responsible for everything in the environment. And we see the the modern counterpart to that is all of the modern environmentalist actions and global warming, and man's attempt that now we're going to change the environment because we're going to shift uh, we're going to shift from uh, gasoline-powered automobiles to electric-powered automobiles, solar-powered automobiles, and it's just going to be a great fiasco. And if you study the data, it's hard hard to find. You're not going to get it on the front cover of the New York Times or the Houston Chronicle. But if you go out and dig in the right places, then you can find out that, that there hasn't been any significant change and atmospheric temperature in the last 10 years there's no evidence of this and the only time there was any warming was just at lower levels it was never in the in the upper atmosphere and there's just a tremendous amount of other data to indicate that the whole global warming thing was just a fiasco but it's a fiasco and a farce that is built upon a certain understanding of the universe and that is an understanding of the universe that is a pagan understanding of the universe and not a God-created understanding of the universe. Therefore, man is in control of all this. Now, that doesn't mean that man can't screw up uh, different parts of the environment in different small areas. You can pollute a river, a lake. You can do different things of that nature. But no human being can create the kind of atmospheric pollution that uh, Mount St. Helens produced or any other volcano. And it's just the height of human arrogance to think that he can and that uh, uh, man, since the Industrial Revolution began in in the 18th century, has somehow caused global change. And yet this, this fits and it works only within a pagan view of reality. But it all fits together. So when we study the dynamics of what's going on in the paganism of northern Israel and the paganism of Baal worship and the fertility religions, don't think that this is just something that that somehow these ignorant ancient people were involved in. Uh, it's It's going on all around us. We watch it on the news. We rub shoulders with people who are thinking the same way as these uh, ancient people in Israel did. They have the same low value of human life. They think everything's a cosmic accident. They think that man is in control of everything and that we have to institute, have government policies to control everything. Otherwise, we're all going to destroy the earth and we're just all going to be wiped out. And then you have the other crowd who says, well, that's going to be good because basically man's the enemy. And so if if everything's going to continue, we need to get rid of this, this terrible human parasite that's nothing more than a... Uh, cancer on, um, on 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 the, on the planet. So well, we've just we've gotten so far away from what most of us grew up with, because of people working out the implications of paganism. And I can just imagine the people, Christians, believers, rather, who were living in the northern kingdom of Israel and watching all of this fertility religion and orgies and Baalism. And these, these, uh, 450 priests going throughout Israel. It's not very large. It's, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was about as large a piece of territory, I think, as from here out to Columbus and, and maybe up to Centerville and over to, uh, uh, maybe, uh, uh Livingston and back down to Houston. That's just not a large area. And you take 450, uh, uh, SS troops, otherwise known as Baal priests, going out trying to seek out all of the believers and killing them or persecuting them, then you have just a horrible, horrible environment in which to live. And that's what it was like. And uh, elijah's going to come on the scene and say, look, there is only one hope. There's one certainty, and I'm going to show that this is the God who controls everything. We don't control him. He controls the environment. He said, told us what he would do in, uh, at the time of the Exodus, at the time of the conquest, and now he's going to do it. He is not going to let it rain again until I say so. And the heavens are going to be uh, like brass, and the earth is going to be, uh, like bronze, and there's not going to be any rain for three and a half years, and so that is going to result not only in individual hardship and hunger, but that's going to have it's going to domino through the entire system. There's going to be economic collapse, economic failure, livestock's going to die, uh, your, your means, uh, uh, any kind of means of subsist- uh, subsistence is going to uh, collapse. And the nation in three and a half years is going to be in a depression and a recession that is worse than anything this nation saw, even in the 30s. But it's a small area with a smaller number of people. But what produced it? What produced it was the rejection of God. But the hope that we have in scripture is that God doesn't walk off and leave us. God is still in control. God provides for the believer just like he did for Elijah. He supplied his every need, provided for him, even though Elijah had to go through all of the tough times, all of the difficult times that all the pagans had to, and he wasn't at all responsible for it and he didn't believe the way they did. He still had to live through that discipline from God and in the process, God was glorified by his consistent obedience. He demonstrates uh, the faith rest drill. He grows spiritually in the midst of that adversity and in the midst of all of that trial, and when we come out the other end, God is going to be glorified in a magnificent way. Does that mean that the northern kingdom turned around and changed their ways? Some did. Some became believers. Many believers came out of hiding and were their faith was strengthened. But even though the events on Mount Carmel were just unbelievable in their scope, and the demonstration of God's existence and his reality uh, were beyond question, there were still thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who refused to accept him and refused to bow the knee, including Ahab and Jezebel. And they just exhibit that same kind of mentality as the uh, earth dweller we study about in Uh, revelation on Sunday morning. Now when I come back from Kiev, we'll get into the uh, first episode with Elijah as God directs him to go to the Brook Kareth, where he will uh, be hidden by God, provided for by God, and uh, that's the first test that he has to go through to prepare him for where God is taking him. Not unlike every one of us, God takes us through various tests in order to prepare us for the ministry, for the responsibility that God has for us in the future, either in this life or in the future in the millennial kingdom. Let's bow our heads and closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged, to think a little more consistently within the framework of your word, to think about what you have revealed, who you are, and the implications that that has for how we think and how we act and for every area uh, of human life. Father, we are thankful that you are such a God that you have revealed these things to us and that we do not have to simply guess about uh, who you are, that we don't have to generate uh, out of our own imagination things about you, even though there are many people who do. We have your word as a sure and certain guide. And Father, as we study these things, may may we have our faith strengthened as we realize that you are still the same God who... Uh, demonstrated such tremendous power at the time of Elijah, and that even though we face adversity and difficult, may face very difficult times in the coming year uh, due to the economic situation in our nation and in the world, that we may be faithful and that we may find you to be true and that we may continue to rely upon your word just as Elijah did. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.